Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm glad to welcome back a familiar guest to the podcast, Amy Tunstall. Amy is the founder of Aim Outside, a project about tying together adventure and mental well-being, getting people back into the outdoors. She has cycled across Canada, New Zealand, and South America. She's been a strong advocate for mental health after her own experiences, and this time she's back after a whirlwind of a year. Car crash, forest fire season, hiking the Bruce Trail, heading to Central America, another crash, a hospital stay and then hiking the Camino de Santiago. Amy's story is a remarkable one, and a reminder that anyone can find adventure. Here's her story. You just got back from El Camino. Tell me a little bit about what was it like? Uh, the Camino was great. Uh, it's a very touristic trail, but we did it during the winter months, so it was fairly quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, ex- except this time around, it was the weather was just off and on so we had rain basically every single day and in some of the mountain passes we'd you know we'd be in the valley bottom and it would be sunshine and it would be spring weather we'd be in our shorts we'd get Mm. up to the top of the mountain pass and it would be a full-blown snowstorm so weather was a little questionable but (laughs) (laughs) people were amazing on the trail it's quite a unique experience because it is so well recognized and people from all over the world like meet on this trail so it's pretty incredible so this is essentially it's a pilgrimage that people do right they they start uh and make their way more or less towards the coast of spain yeah so uh This trail originated during the medieval time, and it was a pilgrimage, basically followed a bunch of different monasteries and uh, cathedrals. And the main goal was to get to Compostela, which is where the main cathedral was. And yeah, it's been done a number of years now. Most people, I'm guessing, are doing this in summer months. Uh, You do it (laughs) in the winter. (laughs) How did that affect things for you? Uh... I think it was a great time because uh, during the summer months, uh, there's a number of times where you can run into situations where the albergues, which are basically hostels, can get overfilled. Mm -hmm. Um, And we heard stories of people leaving at like four in the morning just so they can get a place to sleep. Other than the weather, it wasn't too bad. It was really nice. It was fairly quiet. There were still quite a number of people still on the trail. But I really, I really enjoyed that because I couldn't imagine walking it in 40 degree weather. And that's what you'd hit in the summer. Why El Camino? <laughs> it was actually uh, completely random why I decided to do the Camino. Um, I had a few friends do the Camino before. So I had one good friend from back home and she did it about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And then my friend Jake, who I cycled across South America with, He had done the Camino about a year prior, and I had heard a number of stories about the Camino, and it seemed like just a unique, such a unique, uh, wonderful experience. I've never been to Europe before, so I really wanted to head to a different continent. And then just an individual who I was following on Instagram made a post like, I'm hiking the Camino, and I'm like, Hmm. oh, that sounds really fun. And so I got chatting with him. And within about two days, I had my flight booked for the UK. Wow. See, <laughs> there's a lot of like 
bad things you can say about the internet and about social media and how much it's probably taken away from our time. But on the flip side, like that's got to be one of the cooler things where somebody you've never met before, you can meet up with and and plan a trip with and say, hey, I'm going to come along. It works out. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, incredible. And I think people don't take full advantage of the internet. There's so many great groups that you can join and so many like-minded people that you normally wouldn't have the opportunity to meet in real life. Like friends from school or friends from university, they're all on different stages of of their life, which isn't a bad thing. But it's just trying to find people who have the opportunity to take off for a couple months because it's not very common. Right. Now, the last time we had talked, you were just getting prepared to hike pretty much the same kind of distance, the Bruce Trail, uh, 900 kilometers in one shot. You're back from that now. You managed to do that too. What was yeah. that like? I I thought the Bruce Trail, uh, I, I had so much fun on the Bruce Trail. It was a trek that I had grown up on. So this trail goes from Tobomori down into Niagara Falls. I'm from the Niagara region. And so a lot of the trails I'd hiked when I was younger. And that was really my introduction to the outdoors, just playing around on a bunch of these different systems. So I was excited to do this. And after coming back from South America, one of my big goals was how can I involve my community and get my community active? Because one of my main goals is to get people outdoors, to get people active, because I believe that that affects our mental well-being. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a great tool for anyone of any age. So with the Bruce Trail, I was able to join up with the Canadian Mental Health Association, get them involved, get my community involved, get um, some press about this trail. And then I had a number of people joining me along the way. So I was getting people outdoors. I was teaching people about the outdoors. And in the end, we ended up raising quite a bit of money for a charity that I support. So it it was amazing. Uh, The final... 20 kilometers, my family met up with me. Yeah. And by the time I made it into Queenston Heights, I had about 50 people walking with me. Wow. And, and at the end, the Canadian Mental Health Association was just there waiting. Uh, and it was just an unbelievable experience. And I can't even describe the amount of emotions I was feeling during that time. Hmm. And it was just beautiful to have everyone there. Now, if I remember correctly before you went on the the Bruce Trail hike you hadn't really done any overnight hikes or long-term hikes like you're about to do (laughs) (laughs) how did that go for you uh I think like the longest hike I did before that was a seven-day trip in New Zealand um and, and during that time I had way underpacked food I was living off a jar of Nutella (laughs) <laughs> so uh, it didn't really go so well. I was very famished by the time I came off this hike and uh, <laughs> very sore. But the big thing for me is I definitely have a fear of being alone. Hmm. And on the Bruce Trail, it definitely opened my eyes to, to being alone because it was again during the off season. So there was a period of about seven days where I didn't see a single person. And <laughs> that that gets very lonesome. And yeah. at night, I could hear a few bears up in the north. And 
one night I heard this sound and I was like, what is that? Is that a cougar? Because there's been reported spottings of cougars in the area. Hmm. Uh, and your mind just really like plays on you and you overthink everything and just being alone really okay, and so, getting over that. So tell me what day one of not seeing anybody is like compared to day seven in a row of not seeing a single person. Are you, <laughs> are you talking to yourself by then? How have you changed in that time period? <laughs> well, it, it starts off and you're like, okay, this is pretty nice. And, um, and I'm always good during the day. It's that night where, you know, that loneliness starts to set in mm. and you have no one to talk to. And during the day, I find I can occupy myself a lot more than when I'm in a tent by myself. I've ran out of books to read. So day one's pretty fine. But yeah, by day seven, I was talking to myself. I was having full-blown conversations as, walk as I was walking. I was singing. And just having a conversation in my head, it was like I was two different individuals. It was, yeah, mm. you, you come up with some pretty incredible things. Um, but I find that's when your creativity shines the most is like how you can deal with boredom. Right. Yeah. When you don't yeah. have a phone screen to distract <laughs> you from, yeah. from that boredom. Yeah, exactly. As you're going along. You, you mentioned already how people are occasionally joining you for different stretches of the Bruce Trail. What was that like to be able to have people join you in this long hike that you're doing for the CMHA? It, that was my favorite part. I think an adventure is great. It's a lot of fun. You know, it's always good to push yourself. But when you can teach someone a new skill or you can show them a new tool or you're sharing an experience with someone, I think that trumps an adventure by yourself for sure hmm. because because having people there along with you and people who may not know some of the things that you do and and they can teach you too like there may be a species of trees that you have no idea about but this person does and I <laughs> Instagram again I had a woman her daughter was like hey we're at this part can we come and join you and someone who had just been following my trip off Instagram came and joined me for a day hmm. and it was so so much fun I think especially when you've been walking <laughs> for periods of about seven days by yourself yeah. just having any sort of human interaction is just so nice and you, and you didn't really know whether people were going to join you or not, I'm guessing. You just kind of put it out there saying, hey, I'm going to be here around this time. Yeah, I'd love to have mm -hmm. people. And then to be able to have people actually show up, that's got to be nice to uh, to to know that you're not doing this uh, <laughs> kind of in a vacuum without people actually paying attention. They're they're caring about what you're doing. Yeah, it totally. It's a, it's a really good feeling to have. Just being able to share that experience with other individuals was was my highlight of these past three trips so so if if you were feasting off nutella when you're in new zealand what were you doing on the bruce trail for food i um i actually had to pre-plan everything so i had 32 days worth of food pre-packaged and once a week my mom would drive a box out to me with my food for the week i wasn't snacking as much i probably lost about five pounds hmm. uh walking the trail but one of my weaknesses is chocolate. So I had bags and bags of chocolate with me, uh, milk chocolate, chocolate chips. Oh, they're great. But um, 
one of the things that I did was I really didn't have time to plan for the Bruce Trail like I would have wanted to. Mm-hmm. I was working a fire season and this past summer we were incredibly busy with everything happening, especially in BC. So I didn't have time to make and dehydrate my food. I ended up finding a Canadian company out in Vancouver that did planning for for me. Uh, we worked out a deal for about $500, which was 32 days worth of food, dehydrated and, and good to go. And it was uh, vegan and it was extremely healthy. And I've never been so healthy in my life during these few days. Um, <laughs> so I, I had everything basically planned for me. It was just the most convenient way. Yeah. I want to go back to about a year ago, maybe a bit more. Uh, you, you shared towards the end of 2017 what a year it had been for you from the early beginnings of the year to where you ended up by the end of the year. I mean, February, if you go back to then, uh, you were going through a tough time at the time. You, you kind of realized that you needed to reach out for help at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Where were you at at this time last year, February of, of last year? <laughs> I... I I feel like I've just changed so much in the last year and really identifying for myself that I needed help. I I always come back and forth between I need help, I don't need help. And one of the big things is I always cut myself off medications. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think it's just like a psychological thing that you do because you're like, you're on medications and you're like, I'm fine. And so you take yourself off them. Right. And when I took myself off them, I crashed really hard. And I did it just cold turkey. And it wasn't very smart of me to do because I do know all the side effects. Um, mm-hmm. Took myself off them cold turkey. And within about a week, I was having some of the worst depression and anxiety episodes I've ever had. So I ended up going back to the doctor who I see regularly and put myself back on medications, found something that worked for me. But then I also realized that medication is just a tool. It's not the answer. It's not going to be the life solution. So I started focusing more on spirituality and meditation, guided meditations, yoga practices. And I make sure that I give myself about an hour a day, just time for myself, time to relax, rewind, and and to write down my thoughts. So it's been quite a process, but in the last year, I definitely feel more grounded, more balanced, and more aware of what's going on. And I'm not in this repetitive thought process of repeat, repeat, repeat. I've finally started to like break out of that and move forward and really work on goals that I want. So it, it's been really nice. <laughs> And from last year, it's like I, I was breaking down crying this this time last year and to not be that way or, you know, just to feel in a way better place is is an incredible feeling. So that was February. And then in April, you get into a car crash. Mm-hmm. What happened there? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so every year I, I drive my vehicle out west for my job. I work as a wildland firefighter. And every year I make the 2,000, 3,000 kilometer trip through the US. And last year it was fairly warm. I had all season tires on my car. And by the time I reached Montana, there was thoughts about snowstorms. Like I had heard Mm. some warnings on the news. 
Uh, I was heading to Yellowstone Provincial Park um, and could see the clouds getting really, really dark. So I decided to take a logging road, not a logging road, but it was a small two lane highway mm -hmm. uh, up north to avoid the snow or so I hope. Uh, there was one town in between, and when I hit that town, it would be another, say, 400 kilometers to another town. So I was literally out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I was ha I was halfway through this section when the snowstorm hit, and we got about 30 centimeters of snow in a two-hour period. Um, I just I hadn't seen any traffic or anything, and I, I wasn't going very fast, maybe 30 to 40 kilometers, but I hit black ice, my car spun out, and I went into the side of the road. Uh, when it went into the side of the road, it hit kind of like this berm that was built up, so the front end was pretty smashed in. Mm -hmm. And I was just <laughs> stuck there shaking. Uh, eventually, I ended up calling the police, but it was just a very traumatic experience, but what I realized was a lot of good had actually come out of that crash. How is that? Um, so when the crash happened, I was at the top of a mountain pass and at the top of the mountain pass, there was cell reception. If I had gone any further down this mountain pass, I wouldn't have had cell reception to call the police. Yeah. As I was waiting there, a big tow truck, comes by, not a tow truck, but a Ford 350, which is a pretty big truck, uh, goes by and it just so happens he has a tow rope in the back of his <laughs> truck. And I have been driving on this road for two hours. I have not seen a single person on this road. And all of a sudden this truck appears out of nowhere and he has a tow rope and we get my vehicle out. We managed to pull it to the side and Turns out he's a mechanic, so he checks my entire vehicle, <laughs> making sure that it was it was okay. Um, we had to wait a bit until the police could come because I did call them and they just wanted to make sure. During that time, there was about five other car crashes that happened, and mine was the least priority. So we had to wait another two hours, and this man in his truck just sat with me and waited for the police to come, and we just talked about photography and about life. And it was warm and I wasn't waiting in a car and my car was okay. I had a dent in the radiator, but it wasn't busted. And I got out very lucky in that situation. Could have been a lot worse. Yeah. So in that moment, I mean, when you, when you wrote your recap, you'd mentioned how that had changed your perspective a bit on things. Uh, maybe a life is short kind of scenario. <laughs> did, that, did that have a, an effect on you? It totally did because in that moment in time, I had no way to react. I was there and then I was in the ditch. And there may have been a few seconds in between where I could have done something, but realistically, that same scenario would have played out. And in that moment, I was like, wow, my life could have been over. And during the time before, I was questioning myself on what am I doing with my life? And I've been focusing a lot on travel and a lot on adventures, and that's not necessarily society's way of wanting you to be right. like that nomadic lifestyle. And so I was very much questioning that. And then in that instance, it was just like my life 
literally could have been over. There was a few interesting things that happened where if I was 200 meters down, I would have hit the curb and completely went off. Where I was, I hit a berm and it stopped my car. But if I went 200 meters down, it was just a metal railing. Mm -hmm. And with the speed that I was going at, I feel like I would have flipped off the cliff. And then I was at the top of the hill where I had cell reception anywhere lower. The police told me I wouldn't have had any. And just to have someone who could get me out of that situation only moments after it happened. So I was, I feel very lucky. Yeah. And that's the start of your fire season, getting in a car crash. What, yeah. what, what was the rest of it like? Uh, it was a very, very busy uh, fire season. It started off fairly slowly, but by midsummer, BC declared a state of emergency for, a pro- I think, three months they were in a state of emergency for. And about a month, we stayed in British Columbia doing night operations. And it was the first time I had done like a 24-hour shift because there were towns in danger and were threatened to burn down. So it was the biggest fire that I have ever worked on. And I think last summer, approximately 900,000 acres had burned. What is a 24-hour shift like? What are you doing all that time? Basically, what happened was we had a regular day. We had an 8 a.m. start. And it, it was just a normal day. We were doing some burn operations. And then the relative humidity completely dropped. So we were seeing more intense fire behaviors and it was near the end of our shift. So usually relative humidity drops between like two to five and our shift was like kind of almost done. But because the intensity of the fire was happening so rapidly, we ended up getting stuck in this valley and we had to wait for things to calm down a bit. Then we came out of the valley and the town we were working near was threatened. So whenever you have a town friend or there's that need for you, <laughs> hmm. we we ended up setting sprinkler systems up and it was 8 a.m. the next day when we could sleep. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it it just it just happened so rapidly and it was just fire behavior that was unpredictable and it threatened a town so they had to pull all the resources they could but but it was fine it's <laughs> it you kind of you kind of lose time in that instance because you're so preoccupied with everything happening and you do have that shot of adrenaline and it it's just being part of the bigger picture and seeing that you are part of something what's the most visceral part of that experience of being on a line as a fire is blazing it is it the sound is it the smell is it the heat what are you what are you feeling in that moment oh there there's so much um yeah even it no matter where i am and if i smell a fire i'm like oh there's a fire over there or even on our walk during the camino there's like vista points that you could see and you could see farmers burning. And I'd be like, Oh, there's a fire over there. Hmm. And I just, I think it, what I love the most is fire behavior and how unpredictable it can be. But at the same time, it is very predictable. 
And then I love the rush you get from being around fire and and a lot of the family that you create along the way because you do rely on the people who you work with. After the fire season happens, you get back on the road again. You go to Central America. The plan is to get a motorcycle, never mind the fact that you've never rode a motorcycle before, <laughs> and uh, you were going to learn on the fly. Yes. How did that go for you? Yeah. So after after fire season, firstly was the Bruce Trail. That happened. Right. Uh, it was about a month after my fire season. And then I had two weeks back home just to give myself a, a rest. And then I headed to Costa Rica. I found a flight for about 150 Canadian dollars, which is very cheap, and booked that halfway through the summer. And I had no real plan because usually I overplan everything. So this time I was going to go somewhere with no plan, which actually backfired on me. Um, <laughs> I, I got to Costa Rica with this idea that I was going to buy a motorcycle Never. Well, I had rode a motorcycle once before, maybe like four months prior. Okay. Just to, just to learn. Um, and I thought I was going to be okay, but I got to Costa Rica and I realized they are more westernized than I had figured. Um, so I, I based this trip idea off my friends who had traveled to Vietnam mm -hmm. and other like Southeast Asian countries. Right. So um, you thought it was going to be cheaper probably. Yeah, exactly. And then I got to Costa Rica and it's uh, very much influenced by the Americans. So things were fairly expensive. Or more rules too, probably. Yeah, it was pretty on par with what I'd pay in Canada or the US. Yeah. So I was, I was a little shocked by that, um, but still a very beautiful country. And then I tried to buy a motorcycle and you need to have a motorcycle license. Go figure. Right. So... Uh, <laughs> Having never really driven a motorcycle before, I definitely didn't have a motorcycle license. And I definitely did not do my research to rules and regulations of this country, which I should have. And I ended up spending three weeks backpacking around Costa Rica instead. And in which time I realized I hate buses. Hmm. I absolutely hate bus rides. <laughs> there was nothing fun about being on a bus for five hours with no washrooms, extremely yeah. hot, no air conditioning. And I got to some really nice places, but still very expensive. And I was blowing well past my budget. And then I ran into a few travelers that said I could get a motorbike in Nicaragua. So I ended up heading north to Nicaragua. Okay. So here's a quote of yours, which I'll, I'll, I'd like for you to elaborate on. You mentioned before the beauty of traveling and of expeditions is not that everything is going to go right, but instead everything that you learn about yourself and others when it goes wrong. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the things that went wrong and what you learned. Oh, wow. There were, so <laughs> this motorcycle trip, anything and everything that could go wrong probably did go wrong. First, just my lack of preparation towards this trip. I think I should have done a bit more research, but I had the mentality that I was going to wing it. So right off the bat, I couldn't get my motorcycle. I was gutted. I was heartbroken, but I compromised. Uh, I saw quite a bit of Costa Rica and then I headed to Nicaragua and that was, that was great. I got across the border 
and that border is absolutely hectic. And I met a girl at the hostel who I said, don't worry, I'll help you get across the border. She was from Holland, I believe. Mm -hmm. And she had no experience traveling. So it was chaotic trying to get this girl across the border who had like five luggage bags, who was like giving luggage to just random people. And I'm like, you can't do that. (laughs) So it was just an interesting experience trying to get this other individual across the border when I didn't really know the process myself in a language that I definitely did not speak uh, with people coming at you and just throwing everything at you. Uh, Eventually, we got that sorted. And we ended up staying at a hostel in San Juan del Sur. Now, when I was in San Juan del Sur, we had, it, it's a very, very much a party party place. It's like the Cancun of Nicaragua, if okay. you could imagine that. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a party hostel. We're staying there, went out for a few drinks, but not too much, and came back to the hostel and I fell asleep. And I woke up to this man over my bed. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And I was like, what are you doing? And it it shocked me. It scared me. I woke up to this guy, like, touching my leg in a eight-dorm hostel room. But when I went to bed, this guy was not there. It was just me and my friend Mm -hmm. in in the bedroom. And no no one else was in the room. So uh, I was just really shocked to this man standing over me, touching my leg. And I had to just, I ran to the washroom, I cleaned my face up, I was like, what is happening? Because it was about three or four in the morning. Mm -hmm. And when I came out, he was completely naked on the bed. And I started screaming. And eventually security came up. And, and then this man just disappeared. And I didn't know what happened to him. And then I get a knock on the door at six in the morning. And this a uh, young girl, probably 22, comes up to me and she's like, what'd you do? Why'd you let this man into my room? And I had no idea what she was talking about, but this guy ended up doing the same thing to her. So uh. the next day we ended up having to go and file a police report. And it was just a very shocking experience to our, I think it was our second night in Nicaragua. And you always hear story, these travel stories and stuff like that. But we ended up sitting down with the hostel and being like, this is what went wrong. This is where you guys went wrong. This is why we don't want this to happen to any other girl or any other person. And it, this whole situation just needs to be avoided. We're okay, but this situation was not okay. Right. And so we sat down with a lot of the managers. We sat down with the police and we got everything sorted. And that was my introduction to Nicaragua. <laughs> yeah, how did things go from there? Well, I still didn't know how to ride a motorbike. <laughs> uh, ended up buying a, a motorbike, ended up getting a motorbike, stalled it, and I was very awkward and uncomfortable on the motorbike. It was not something that came naturally to me. It was just something that I had never done before. The balance was completely off. I just didn't understand the mechanics of a motorbike, and I had some amazing friends in the area who showed me how to ride but me being overly confident in things that I am not good at took its toll on me and I got nervous around a bus ended up pulling my brakes on a gravel road and I and the whole bike skidded out from under me 
which uh, ended up causing a few stitches in my leg mm. uh, and ended up becoming a severe infection where I almost had septus. So I had quite the medical scare. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of different things that, <laughs> that went wrong in that. How did, yeah. you, how did you rebound after that happening? Uh, I, so what ha- had happened was we're about an hour from the hospital and Nicaraguan hospitals are nowhere near up to Canadian standards. They're still great. They're, they're amazing. The people are lovely. But, you know, there's geckos running around and there's stray dogs running through the emergency. And mm-hmm. it, it, that in itself is an experience. It's an adventure. Uh, but when I was there, I feel like the infection wasn't treated properly and they closed up the stitching with a massive infection in it. My knee ended up blowing out to the size of an elephant trunk. And about six days later, I couldn't walk at all. But I was still riding my motorbike in the meantime. So I wasn't really taking care of myself. And I ended up getting close to the Honduras border where I just, I was in so much pain and I went into the hospital yet again and the doctors just looked at me and they're just like, you need to stop whatever you're doing right now. You need to just stop because this is a huge medical concern and there's a threat that you can lose your leg. So I had to take it really seriously and I ended up renting out a hotel room for about 15 days near the Honduras border and they put me basically into a drug-induced coma where I'd only wake up to like change my bandages and yeah and then I learned that infections are very serious but I also learned how to deal with medical situations in a foreign country and another thing that shocked me was how little it costs to take care of that. Like if this would have happened in the US, I'd probably be looking at $15,000 where in Nicaragua it cost me a little under $200 to take care of. And it it was a really good learning experience. I think a lot of times we don't take cuts or anything like that very seriously, but especially in the tropics, it can manifest a lot quicker than you would expect. You've written before how there's a tendency that we often have to make adventure seem out of reach almost or overglorified instead of the truth being more attainable, something that you know any one of us could feasibly do. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I, so the person who I went on the Camino with, his name was Patrick, and we ended up getting into the conversation of the overglorification of adventure. And I think with social media and I think with Instagram, especially it's everyone nowadays are these adventurers and mm-hmm. everyone's getting all these sponsorships and everyone's getting all this money towards different trips and treks and people are writing books about it. And for a normal person, that can be very overwhelming. Like I feel overwhelmed by it. But for someone just starting out, It could be a huge deterrent in trying to do something like this. And I think one of the greatest speeches that I saw was if you can wake up in the morning, if you can take down a tent, if you can walk, you can do a trip like this. 
I think the biggest thing with any of these trips is you have to think about them on a smaller scale. You know, if you're like, I'm going to walk around the world, that seems crazy. People are like, whoa. But if you're like, okay, in a day, I walk 20 kilometers. That is normal. You know, that doesn't seem like this overwhelming idea, but it's just the repetition of it. And I've met so many amazing people of all walks of life doing these trips. I've met that like last year, I met this 80 year old man who had cycled across Canada like eight times. And I've met so many people, 50s to 80s, walking the Camino de Santiago. And I've met people as young as like 18, 19 doing trips like these as well. I think the biggest thing is just, yeah, this over-glorification of adventure because realistically it kind of just a way to vacation or at least that's how I see it. <laughs> <laughs> if we go back to, again, about a year ago, maybe a bit more, as you're, as you're wondering, you know, am I, am I, I guess, where am I going if, if people are questioning how many trips I'm taking and, uh, and how am I going to settle into an actual kind of life? You have this other concept of, of beneficial selfishness. Uh, yeah. Tell me about that. What is that for you? Beneficial selfishness. It's, it's a great thing. I think when you are selfish for yourself, then you can start benefiting other people. When you start doing things for yourself and when you start realizing what you're good at, what things you can do to contribute, it's just overwhelming the things that you can return to other people. So, so there's a moment in your time where you have to be selfish and you have to discover a lot about yourself. And when you discover a lot about yourself, then you can share that with the world, with other people. And once you have that knowledge and once you're confident with yourself, then the rest of it kind of comes easily hmm. or so I've, I've found. What have you learned in the past year or more? Uh, from the different trips you've taken, from the different things that life has thrown at you? <laughs> so much. <laughs> There's just so much. Um, one of the biggest things I think that I have learned, especially on my travels, I, I started off these trips and it was, how can I benefit me? Like, how can I get myself out of this depression? Like, what do I have to offer to the world? Who I, am I as an individual? And that's the place that I started from. And then when I went to New Zealand, I learned about culture when I was invited to spend a Christmas with the Maoris. And then when I went to South America, it was like, this is how the world works. Like, this is how most the world is. And it was shocking, eye-opening. And I struggled a lot on that trip, mainly from just the environment that I was surrounded in. Hmm. It's like I was in the favelas. I was aware that deforestation is a thing that's pretty serious to a lot of these regions. Uh, that drought was very much real. That people lived in shacks, but at the same time, people were happy. And I was, I was overwhelmed with that knowledge. And then I came back and I'm like, okay, how can I give back to my community? Because I see a lot of my community is struggling. So what tools can I give them in return? And I thought that the Bruce Trail would be a good answer to that. And 
and it was. And then I, I set off again to see how can I learn more about the world? And that was my trip to Central America, another developing region. And yet again, I found a lot more happy people, uh, a lot of people who are so focused in their community. And instead of money as a commodity, they trade what they're good at, different skills, you know, food. And I thought that was, I am so in love with that developing way of living. I think that's what I really, really love and strive for. And that was like after my car crash. So I had that kind of like moment that life can be taken so quickly. And then finally with this last trip, it was like a very quick decision where I was like, Let's go meet someone on the other side of the world and just have a random adventure before I have to go work again. Hmm. Of all these experiences, and and maybe it's a bit unfair to ask now that you just got back from your last trip, (laughs) but uh, but what's next? Where do you see uh, the next place being or the the next uh, challenge being? (laughs) I think one of the, I, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but whenever you're on a trip, I find myself thinking about all these other trips that I would love to do. Yep. Um, <laughs> it, it sucks, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I love it at the same time. I think planning is one of my favorite parts about these trips that I do. And my favorite mode to travel ha- so far has been motorcycle. So I want to incorporate that in my next trip. Mm. And I was really hoping to just, work for about a year and a half and then take off for about two years um, doing a world trip. Hopefully a bit more practice on the motorcycle before <laughs> before that <Yeah>. happens. <laughs> no, I, I swear I've gotten a little better since uh, <laughs> since Nicaragua. So Yeah, well, that, that's good. That's exciting. If someone's listening to this, what do you hope for them to take away, uh, whether it's something about travel or about life? Uh, if there's any anything else that you, you want somebody to take away from all this? I, one of my biggest things is that whatever your dreams are in life, go after them, go get them, go do them. And they may seem so crazy to everyone else, but if you don't experience them, you'll never really know. And sure, they might be crazy to some people, but the crazy ideas are always the best ones. All right. Thanks, Amy. I appreciate your time. Uh, It was fun catching up with you again. (laughs) Thank you. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to hear more of Amy's story, you can listen to our last conversation. Just head back through the catalogs. You can also head to aimoutside.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find the show. And if you want to get in touch, and please do, send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle, off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.